Hello, I'm Benson Dilley. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. The Two Enthusiasts Podcast. The Naked Chicken Chalupa of Motorcycle Podcasts. <laughs> what the hell is I that? I bet you can't have just one. <laughs> what is a Naked Chicken Chalupa? Quentin, this show may or may not be sponsored by Taco Bell. <laughs> All I'm saying All right. is if you're in the Portland area and you go to the Taco Bell on 52nd and Foster yeah. and say the magic words, Princess Dusseldorf, you may or may not get 50% off your purchase. <laughs> Just saying. Just saying. <laughs> it may happen. Man, those things are so tasty. They're like crack cocaine. What, what, what is it? Why is it the, naked? The, it, it's like a, a flattened chicken breast that's been deep fried. Uh-huh. that's the taco shell and then they fill it in <laughs> Then they fill it in with like the lettuce the tomato and the cheese wow. and, and they put like a little hot sauce on it it's good stuff yeah really not good for you i think it's like four weeks of sodium per serving <laughs> <laughs> sounds interesting you never heard of this give it a give it a whirl i would imagine wash it down with the mountain dew got, that was where i was about to go i was about to say there was only only to be tasted with Mountain Dew as a. That might be the only reason I go to Taco Bell is that <laughs> I, I can figured. get like a mountain, uh, an extra large Mountain Dew mm-hmm. with it, and just just go full John McGinnis with my diet. Oh, that's so mean. He's not racing in the TT this year. I'm really disappointed by that. Is he hurt? Yeah, he's hurt. He rebroke yeah. his leg. I think we talked about this on our. I earlier think we did show. too. Ian Hutchinson though will be racing, so yeah. I'm stoked about that. Mickey D is looking good. Northwest 200 is going Mick, on right. Mickey D. Michael Dunlop. Oh, sorry. Never heard. You gotta of get on with your Irish road racing. No, sir. I'm not gonna call him Mickey D. Northwest 200 is going on right D's now. Nuts. Yeah, craziness. Well, I there there was a really good. Uh, if you can watch the last lap of the Super Stock Race or whatever the thousand CC, I I don't think it's a Super Bike Dunlop, and I can't remember. He's a new kid. I'm I'm bummed. But what what try and find it because it was really good. It was a last lap pass situation and Dunlop almost ate shit. And so did an, another one of the dudes that got uh, passed right at the last corner. Was it Peter Hickman? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Young young guy. Yes. Uh, BMW, I believe. Yeah. They yeah. Were, all of them looked like they were on BMW. BMW is the bike to be on right now. Yeah. Yeah. Out there. Especially sure. since the way BMW Motorrad is set up, if you've got enough money, they'll build the bike for you. Yeah. There's no kind of favorites. There's no like true factory thing. It's like if you've got the money, We'll build the bike. You'll have world superbike horsepower. Yeah. And they've been in the rotation enough that they've got a pretty good road racing setup. They must because none of that's BS, right? Yeah. It's difficult to set those bikes up. You yeah. can't just take a superbike that does road courses and no. make As it Bruce work. As Bruce Anstey learned last year when he rode the RC 21.3 VS, you know, GP replica bike. And he did okay, but you yeah. really have to... You have to make them taller. You have to increase the ground clearance. You have to do all this stuff with suspension. And it it takes a couple seasons to really get a bike dialed in, which is something we've seen with Michael Dunlop, where he's been contracted to ride a certain bike. And the last minute, he'll be like, nope, fuck it. I'm going to go ride my BMW. Because it doesn't. He He did that with the Jixxer. And I think he did did that with... I think he did that with someone else. But I know he did that when he was supposed to ride with Suzuki, Tass Suzuki. And he was like, no, this thing's slow. It's not ready. Hopped on his BMW, broke some lap records. Now it, Peter Hickman looked looked proper hard in the in the pass that he made that I watched was pretty impressive. And what they're doing? Did you see the p- picture I posted on Two Enthusiasts? Oh man, I'm forgetting all the people. Who's the one that rides a Honda now? Lee Johnston. You're thinking of Lee Johnston. Johnston. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. On the curb. Gnarly. Like it's one of the best pictures I've ever seen of just. Well, that's one of the things I was trying to explain to 
someone the other day, this is this is a thing that these guys are doing now. They're literally using the curbs to straighten the tires out to finish off the 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 cornering. Like it's intentional that they're hitting the curb because it's whacking the the tires straight and then they can accelerate almost like a a point just and like shoot. a berm like for the dirt bike. Absolutely. Fucking crazy. Yeah, for sure. Well, and there Alan Schmidt at in Omer, we used to use the wall at PIR uh, consistently to bounce off to do that exact thing, right? It was consistent, apparently. I never saw it, never witnessed it, but it was just a little love tap because you got the wall right there, and if you're going to take it all the way to the edge of the track, <laughs> gnarly. It's a different breed. Yeah, it's a different, different breed, breed, man. Now, if the question would be, if you had a uh, jet, like a Jado rocket that you could stick off the side of the bike, would that give you grip? You're so ahead of me. You're so, that's like, <laughs> how many how many more stories down is that before we get there? That's because I posted want, that shit on Two Enthusiasts before you had a chance to post it on there. <laughs> I, I should have credited you with the hat tip. No, you got to credit, uh, I think it was Samir, was one of the listeners. He posted it uh, to us on um, on the Two Enthusiasts, uh, you know, v, uh, uh, I'm sorry. On the messenger? Ma, yeah, sorry, on the messenger. Uh, and I was like, oh, wow, that's actually really interesting. So that's why I posted right it. Right on. Well, thank so, you, yeah, Samir. Really cool. Yeah. That That's, um, we should just talk about it. We're already talking about it. That's an interesting technology. <laughs> you, why are you saying it in such a shell-shocked, you're looking, you got the million-mile stare. Like I, I'm, I, I had to dig really hard to figure out what was going on here, and I really didn't come up with a lot because Bosch doesn't really seem to have anything forward-facing. So the story yeah. comes from CNET uh-huh. and their little automotive sub-blog or whatever it is. And so you don't really like – and they don't really – they didn't really say much. There's like, hey, we got this video. I'm like, well, okay. There's a part of me that thinks that this actually predates Bosch's work with cornering ABS. Maybe not. I'd have to go back and look at the KTM that they're on and see if I could figure out what year it is. That's a new enough one, It looks man. pretty new, right? It's new enough to where I, I don't think... But yeah. there's like a weird thing where I'm like, cornering ABS kind of takes care of this, but doesn't because all the cornering ABS can do is modulate the front brake pressure. Mm-hmm. If you just go over gravel and lose the front because no, dude, of this a is loss giving of friction. you a physical yeah. pressure force yeah. vector that's different yeah. than... Yeah. So to to explain it to those who haven't seen it, uh, you're in a corner, you're at lean, at any lean really, but probably mostly at deep lean angles, uh, well into the 40 degrees. Uh, If the bike starts slipping on gravel and the the video shows just a wide swath of gravel, as the front tire is tucking this... I don't know. It's not a rocket, but it's It's a... a thruster. It's a thruster. It's a compressed gas thruster. And it just goes out, essentially... How would you say uh, perpendicular to the bike? If the bike, it, it's it's blasting out exactly perpendicular to the bike. So I don't think it was blasting opposite of where the bike was leaning or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of forces the bike down. Uh, so you see the the boosh go up. And boosh is a technical term. Boosh. And it booshes. How many how many boosh forces do you think it puts out? <laughs> it's 3.1 boosh forces. Three, 3.1 booshes. I was going to say like around three or four booshes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's a good estimate. I don't think it's so much that it pushes the boosh force down. I no. think it's booshing uh-huh. uh, across. It, it's counteracting the lateral slide, uh-huh. which is interesting. Uh-huh. It's really interesting. And it seems to work. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm having like a hard time imagining like future motorcycles with this, but if it works. Yeah. And if it's not too heavy, that's always the thing is like, if it is a, a compressed gas with a nozzle and it's in a very specific way and then, then the electronics are there, I guess. Well, this is what I wrote in the story where, you know, the, the, the physical part of this is really freaking easy. It's a tank with a nozzle. Yeah. We've had this technology for a century, maybe more. Um, the tricky part is going to be the electronics that senses like when to fire off the nozzle. Cause <laughs> a false positive would be pretty bad. Well, that's what I said. My joke was I want this weaponized so that I can, <laughs> I can, I can get after somebody in the left-hand lane as on, right. You want right? to get, you want to get really ahead of, of ourselves here. This is going to replace kickstands. Oh yeah. Funny. Just yeah. bikes these upright. Yeah, floating. Yeah, yeah. No, but but Bosch has already done all the hard parts in terms of developing the technology to detect the slide and yeah. to know when it's doing it. Like sure. that's what the IMU is for. So they've they've already basically got all the hardware on the bike. So all it is is probably just a solenoid or something or something that's triggering the the release yeah. of the nozzle. Yeah. No, the sure. gas. No, I I, it I think probably now, really isn't that hard to implement. No, and that's probably why they. So here's the deal: you got to pay a little bit closer attention to the comments on these to enthusiast Facebook pages because uh, a former CIS engineer, Matthew uh, Grillaud, Grilled, I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm sorry, Matthew. Matthew was uh, with... Sounds French. He was. He was... Suspiciously French. Yeah, all of the... Um, was he one of the intern guys? Yeah, all of the yeah. interns were French. I forget what the situation was, but most of them were at CIS. So... Michael was secretly in a French cheese smuggling ring. It could you have been. You heard that here first. It could have been, for sure. He had Brie up to the knee. <laughs> the Brie's knees. <laughs> um, so he is works for Bosch, and he has for years, and he's bounced things back and forth with me for many years now. I think he was on a scooter project, and he made a couple comments on this. We should probably try and figure out if we can get him on the podcast. He probably wouldn't, because he works for Bosch in Europe, like in Germany, uh, and he he's working on... The other side, which was there was a press release. Did you see that? The Bosch's press release for all their other stuff that they got going on. It happened almost simultaneously. Mm. All right. Well, we'll have to look at this after the. But anyway, he's working on it. It's basically how bikes are going to interact with other vehicles on the road. Yes. And it goes towards autonomous vehicles. Bosch right? has been working on V2V communication yep. for so quite a while. He's, now. he's yeah. on that side, I okay. think. But it'd probably be worth talking to him because he's a very in depth enthusiast. I mean, it'd be cool. Cool. Yeah, I'm, I'd be pretty stoked to. We got to figure that out. We can we can smuggle some baguettes or something. We'll figure it out. <laughs> You're a douche baguette. If that happens. <laughs> That's just mean. Why'd you? I was so supportive of your stupid made up force metric a second ago, and you just left me out to dry on that. Man, uh, welcome you into my home and everything. I tell you about the naked chalupa. And I'm not going to call Matthew a douche baguette. 20 minutes into the show. All right, it's going to be like another hour of awkwardness uh, now. No, it is not. <laughs> you're you're going to just edit that out anyway. No. You silence me. No. I'm censoring you. Um, so we were in the racing. Getting, getting into and then the we went to Bosch. <laughs> so. Getting back to what I had written down. Uh, now we've got a Tarantino at all. I was going to talk a little about racing because there's been a lot of racing news lately. And I don't want to touch on too much of it because it's been a lot of riders signing contracts and yeah, sure. doing stuff like that. Jonathan Ray won a bunch of races again. He just yeah. matched uh, Carl Fogarty in total wins in World Superbike. And that's a pretty big feat. That's a pretty big deal. And he's on his way to tie in Fogarty for championship titles. Yeah. 
So legit dude, um, Steve English sat down with him at Immel, I believe, and had a good interview. We just put that up on ANR Pro and Johnny's Johnny's the man. And he reads a lot of stuff. Uh, I think he's a friend of the show, even if, uh, if memory serves me correct. He consumes a lot of motorcycle media. That's awesome. Yeah. So he's he's kicking ass, taking names. Unfortunately, it's making Superbike super boring. Yeah. Super boring bike. Yeah. And stuff. And they're doing some crazy things, or at least there's rumors of crazy things. Like they're talking about doing three races now and having like one Ugh. on a Friday. Oh. They're, they're, I think rightfully so, Dorna is looking at the World Superbike formula and trying to figure out how it can be different from the traditional Grand Prix formula. Yeah. In terms of what that race has to offer or what that event has to offer. Sure. So it's at least good to see that anything's on the table. You know, anything's possible. We're we're open to all ideas. We're brainstorming. There's no bad idea. Let's just get them all out there. But it's going to be kind of tough. I do think the racing model needs to be tweaked for the 21st century. Maybe they'll figure it out. Maybe a superbike dies before they get a chance. I don't know. Hopefully not. Hopefully I think not. It makes legit sense to have like road bikes out there. The biggest thing I think is just having more manufacturers involved. Yeah. I don't know if there's really anything wrong with the superbike formula. The thing that's wrong is that. Only Kawasaki and Ducati are spending the money. Yeah. So Yamaha, not a really. Little, a little, but not, not really. enough to. I, I mean, make I a think huge they're dent. definitely the third, sure. third one down in terms of budget, but it's like 10 million, 12 million, 10 million, and like 2 million. And then yep. everyone else is just like, oh, yeah, we show up. And if MV Agusta with that thing can get a top 10, I mean, all credit to them. They're making that bike work, but I'm sorry. If they that can, is a finely polished turd. Yeah, so, I shouldn't say turd. Well, I should, but yeah. that that bike's old. That's an old That's bike. That's what I'm saying. That is old. The not tooth. hacking on them. They at are all. really making every ounce of that thing go forward. But if the rest of the manufacturers had their shit together, I mean Honda, Honda, Honda. I'm sorry, you need to get your shit together. Yeah, yeah. There's no excuse. Well, that that I mean. Fuck it. My, my whole like little list of stories on how we were going to get to things is totally blown. That is one of the things that seems to be kind of percolating right now. Um, we've been kind of hearing rumors that we might see another Honda Superbike later this year, <laughs> <laughs> which is something we've it, had to do this every before. year that we talk on the, oh on this podcast. This is literally a rumor that's been going on for 20 years. Uh-huh. Is it a V4? <laughs> it is a V4. That's the rumor, at least. But there's this idea that's been put forth, and it's it's worth talking about, at least in this context. I don't know how much credence I give the whole V4 thing, but at least it's kind of interesting to hear that the current Honda CBR1000RR or Fireblade, depending what market you're in, was just uh, um, an intermediary step to what's now going to be like a second step iteration. So there could be this next evolution of the Superbike that'll be a bigger step forward in terms of chassis and engine and a bigger step since 2008 because the one that we're dealing no, 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 with no. now well the one that we're dealing with now takes the 2008 bike basically takes all the frame pieces and you know does like a millimeter here and there of tolerance yeah. and, and sure. wonkiness massages the motor gets yeah. a bunch of iterative more, change not iterative a whole change. change they added drive by wire they added traction yeah. control they added an IMU and, and, and ABS. effectively I enjoy riding that bike very much it's the best 600cc bike I've ever ridden <laughs> it's true that's why I love it, because even if it didn't have the power, it has plenty of power to do most of the things that most normal humans would want. It's awesome. It handles great. It's a great handling bike. It's a great handling super sport. But it is, it's interesting to see, okay, so the rumor is this idea that they're going to take that and 
and evolve it even further. And maybe that means a an all new chassis or an all new motor or whatever that is or both. It's Ooh, weird that really we're talking knows? about this like no duh like that. But the, I guess my brain's still in 2007 when yeah. Two years from now, you're going to get a completely revised 1,000cc bike from every single manufacturer. Well, that clearly didn't happen, Quinn. But it hasn't happened in so long. I guess you're talking about it like, yeah, no shit. Yeah, and then 2017 came along, and instead of getting an all-new bike that we we thought we were going to get, we got pretty much last year's bike with some different stuff on it, and we're told that it was all-new when it really wasn't. And now it seems like maybe now they're going to make good on that promise, or they're going to take at least evolve it even further again. So maybe it is going to be an iterative change, but maybe it's going to be another... That actually gets it competitive. Maybe, yeah. I mean, maybe a bigger step. I mean, like, truthfully, like, in my book, that all that bike really needs is an electronic interface that's actually intuitive and understands what the level of art is in the marketplace. Mm. And maybe, like, 20 more horsepower. No yeah. big deal. Just 20 more horsepower. Put a Put a fucking thruster out the back you, and be set. We need a Jado rockets is what we need. Not just thrusters, true Jado rockets. Just ion thrusters. <laughs> ion that. Um, yeah, it shouldn't be that difficult. It shouldn't be. 20 horsepower in this day and age. Maybe not in that on, current engine design, it's yeah. not. But you know, you can make, you can and definitely make an inline everybody four else that makes has 200 done horsepower. Yeah. Everybody else has done it. Right. Sorry. Right. Do it. Right. Make it happen. And to, to throw in another rumor, um, I've heard that the BMW S1000RR, the next version of that, which we may see later this year at Intermont, will have a counter-rotating crankshaft. It'd be cool to see like Honda, because they're rocking that in yeah. um, GP. At least that's the rumor. It'd be cool to see if they brought that out to a street bike or a super bike. It would be even cooler to have somebody truly break that down what the forces are mm. and what that actually does because it's surprisingly not as much as you'd expect but it would be interesting to see somebody come up with that right I, I'd, I'd like to get somebody on that someone who you have to take part of the motor and weigh shit wouldn't you potentially right yeah you can you can extrapolate a lot just off of you know everybody has a general idea but it'd be interesting to see what the mechanism is because the the main thing is that a crankshaft it's a big, heavy thing, but it's long and relatively skinny. The weight of the crankshaft isn't that far away from the axle, from the center. From the axle, yeah. Right? So, But a clutch basket, holy fuck, it's huge. And all the plates and all the, all the weight is on the outside. So the big gear that's on the outside at the back of a clutch basket that's running off the primary and the, uh, the plates and all that, it makes a huge difference. So the, the calcs you have to do really... A crank rotating one way and that rotating the other way because they usually are opposite each other almost cancel each other out like from a from a force standpoint and a lot of people don't recognize that so i'm trying to think back to the slow-mo videos from MotoGP, but i remember when yamaha a couple of yamaha videos and i vaguely remember the clutch basket going the counter rotating as well I'd have to look. I don't know. That's the question. But that would be an interesting. Like, do they have an intermediary gear mm-hmm. that, like, mm-hmm. that is there's jack shaft or something? And somebody explained to me that they did. I just never seen it. I haven't paid enough attention to it. Um, but that would be the thing. Is it, are they both going the same way? You know, forcing the bike down instead of up as as it would It'd be interesting to understand it. That's what I'm saying. I'd, I'd like to see a, a little bit more of a breakdown of it. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how we can do that. What we'll to think about it. Yeah. We'll talk about it off offline. Sure. 
moving along, since we talked about MV Augusta, just a quick mention, they're going to go racing to Moto2. Which I thought was an amazing thing. I That came out of the blue. Would have never guessed that. That's been percolating for a while. I've heard that rumor before. In fact, uh, I think if you listen to the last uh, motor podcast that I did with Giovanni Castiglione, he makes mention of it. It's been in the space, but it hasn't been talked about a lot. And now it's officially official, and they're going to do it in conjunction with Ford Racing. The they used to be a MotoGP team. Now they run Moto Two. Is that what they're? So who who have they got in Moto Two now? Do you know Ford Racing? Yeah, I don't remember. I remember that was what uh, uh, Colin look. Edwards was on for a bit. Right, Colin Edwards was on it when they were doing the CRT program uh-huh. and all that. I don't know who is their rider in Moto Two. Right Bottom line now. is everybody's going to be using these Triumph. 700 and some odd CC 765s, triples. yeah. 765 triples. Um, and that is interesting that MV would say, all right, well, we make triples, so we know how to make a good chassis. We'll take that turd wedge of an engine and make it work then, right? <laughs> and hopefully it works, right? Everybody has to use the same turd wedge of an engine. I don't think it's that bad of an engine. It's going to make like 140 uh, horsepower. I, I say that with... Uh, is, that a, is that a technical term, turd uh, wedge? Turd wedge. So the riders, just so we have it out there. Stefano Manzi, Eric Granado. So no, nobody. No one I know. No yeah. one I heard of. They're, they're not high up in the point standings. I don't recognize the name for some. Yeah. Well, the concern being that forward might not be a good, you know, program. But forward is a pretty good program. In fact, um, they're they're an interesting one. So the guy that owns it is um, Giovanni Cusari. And he got accused of money laundering and fraud and like a whole bunch of craziness. And it basically ended his time in the MotoGP paddock. And I think the charges got dropped and now he's kind of trying to rebuild his reputation. Huh. But in the interim, the team kind of lived on in, in the Moto2 paddock. They were able to put a Moto2 program together. And I don't think they're doing Moto3. I think it's just Moto2. Yeah. And Melina Kroner. She was a, she was originally the press officer for Ford Racing huh. and Tectois, and now she is the team boss, and she's really turned things around. Like she's she's a legit force to be reckoned with. Woman in the MotoGP paddock, awesome. anyone in the MotoGP paddock would be like, oh yeah, she she kicks ass, takes names, gets it done. I think they joked when she left Tectois, they had to hire three people to replace her. Yeah. Like, like she was doing cool. so much stuff and responsible stuff. So she's come in and really whipped that team around, and I only hear good things about what she's doing. So. Yeah, I think if they come together with with MV and MV comes up with a cool chassis bike design yeah, package and sure. you know the 765 triple from Triumph isn't I was going to say it isn't that different from I can't the imagine MV engine but it is. With that said, the MV triple is one I of I think the only thing they share in common is the number of cylinders. And that's it. And yeah. the, and it, that that bike that engine is well known as an, a jewel like Ronnie from RS Racecraft talked to, he loves those engines. They're just extremely well designed. Yeah. So yeah, I, don't, I don't know. I'd like to see them back to back and sitting next to each other. All right. What's the differences? But as, as of now, I think I just say turd wedge because all I can think about is Triumph Bonnevilles and fake carburetors. And I just, they seize in my brain as turd wedges because of that. Even though I know damn well better. I had a 675 and I loved it and it was a great bike, you know? And I would... Out of all like the adventure touring bikes, you know, I think of the Triumph, the 800 is probably higher up there than a lot. Certainly rather have one of those the than Triumph a BMW. Triumph 800 is a really good bike. Right? Absolutely. So I think, if, I think if you're in the market for a middleweight adventure bike, if all you want to do is go off road, if you're never going to touch asphalt, Africa Twin. If you want to ever like just do like a mile down the road, 
Triumph because that bike is so good off road and it's so good on road yeah, that you're not compromise. really yeah. you're not really making too many compromises. Where I feel like the Africa Twin, you really do make some on road compromises for off road goodness. But my point yeah, being, it's that I know the Triumph makes good shit. I get it. I'm not completely, but I I have been clouded by these years of watching these turd wedges, turd wedge that I just kind of put them all in that basket and that's unfortunate so i'll try not to do that any longer the um the bonneville engine's pretty good i know it's fine but eh, it's, right. it's the fake carb thing yeah it really you don't like fake carbs ugh. you want you want that steak it's just so you want the naked chalupa i do <laughs> yeah but that's chicken princess dusseldorf <laughs> all right so let's move on mv gusta check I think it'll be, yeah, I'm stoked to see what, what comes to that. I think we're going to see the bike in July. But not competing until next year. Right, 2019. They might go out in like the CEV series or something. No. It makes you wonder how they're going to. I don't think so. They're just going to be testing. I think they're going to be like everyone else will, they'll be testing. We've okay. already seen the Calyx version of the bike. Oh, really? Um, oh, okay. I think yeah, KTM yeah, right. has been doing some stuff. I've got a couple stories percolating on on the Triumph Moto2 program, but. I'm going to reach out to my my MV spies and, and see if we can find out some info because I now, think there could be some good stuff there. Are are the manufacturers that manufacture the engine forbidden? Like, could Honda have made a Moto2 entry? Yeah, I think they could have, but I think that would have gone like against the spirit yeah. of it. I think there was a little bit of a, maybe a gentleman's agreement on that. I know when the Moto2 class started, Honda basically gave everyone specs and said, hey, this is what we think you guys should build. You're as far free to as do like a chassis, chassis, exhaust, huh. all these kind of things. Like this is what we would do. Here, have at it. And there's this been is, no this other. This is a good starting place for you. Other than KTM, they're the only ones that are right. like a major manufacturer that got in on it. Right. And KTM, and for KTM, it it's more of a we're going to build them through Moto Three, Moto Two, yeah. all the way into Moto GP. We want a channel of ascension for our riders and our teams and our. Our, our mechanics and all that jazz. A channel of ex- ascension. ascension. Yeah, yeah like that's that. a good business bingo term there. We need I think a that's channel. just a Jensen. Yeah. That's just, that's, is it? I'm not just that's a pretty face, brain. Quentin. It's yeah. this big brain over here. Oh my gosh. All that's right, that well. quarter million dollar brain. <laughs> a channel of ascension, all that's right. 6% interest. <laughs> You've got 100% of my interest. Yeah. Jensen. Hey. Um, totally lost my train of thought now. There's the money wasted. I have that down the drain. People, do you think Triumph would? No, I don't think Triumph will. I don't think it makes. I mean, I barely understand why Triumph is racing or doing the the engine supplying in Moto Two in the first place. But I don't think they have any intention of of racing. But it is interesting to see that more manufacturers are getting on board now. Yeah, I think having the engine supplier be someone that isn't racing in Grand Prix that at makes all kind of helps a little bit better. Sure. Especially when you have like this kind of KTM Honda rivalry, like you know, like there was a little pride swallowing that hadn't been done in in Austria to make that decision palpable. And I think that they're pretty happy that the Honda thing is going away. In fact, I'm trying to think if KTM came in before or after it was announced that Honda wasn't going to be the engine supplier for Moto2. It was certainly around that time. Yeah. So I think that might be of note as well. So it's interesting. It's interesting to see. I'm really curious to see what MV comes up with. It coincides with the fact that they basically won't be racing in Superbike in 2020 for sure. And we're not even sure if they have a 2019 season in them. 
the F4 is about to kind of go away, and there's going to be a couple of years where we don't have a superbike from MV Augusta sure. in the uh, the product lineup. No, this this after our podcast where we talked about that makes way way more sense. Yeah, now I get it. Yeah, okay. I think I think truthfully, when you look at it through that lens, that's how the yeah it makes make perfect sense. sense. Um, moving onward. I just wrote a story about the Ducati Pikes Peak bike and their effort to go back to Colorado to reclaim their crown uh, as uh, the, f- I, want, I think they're going after the outright lap, uh, record for motorcycles. I think they are. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I forget the class. Even the many times that I was up there, one time it was well, like. it was the, the it started out with the bullshit class. All right, whatever like, that I was. I think it was literally the 1206 yeah. CC class. It was like literally the only bike that was legal in the class was like well, a Multistrada. And Buells. Yeah. yeah. That was the first year I went up there, which was just hollow. It was completely hollow. It didn't mean anything. But then the second year when Carlin won the first time. And I think that at that time was, mm-hmm. I can't remember if that's when he actually got below 10, but he no, won. No, I don't think so. I don't think so either. His rookie, I don't think he was under 10. No, but he, he did really well. He beat the shit out of the, the quote unquote factory team. It was awesome. Um, that was still like, I didn't know if there was like what, what the class structure was. And it's changed a few times. So I'm not really. It's changed a few times. It started out, Ducati was definitely racing themselves. Yeah. And now it's gotten a little bit more competitive. We've seen Honda come in one year. We've seen Kawasaki come in. We've seen KTM come in with these kind of quasi factory supported. They're not yeah. like factory factory efforts, but they're definitely getting help from the mothership. Sure. Um, and I think Ducati was just like, all right, cool. We're going to come back. We got this 1260 Multistrada. We're going to get Carlin and they've got a. Um, a Va- Vashult's son or yeah, brother. And he or... is the m- current record holder. Um, so you're talking the about middle, middle Cody, Cody Vashult. Yeah, but he's he, the current record holder for the middleweight class. And his somebody in his family that that last he's a racing family is yeah. a well known Pikes yeah. Peak family. So yeah. I, I'm sorry, I don't know the exact, but yeah, super cool. I didn't know anything about him. I'm glad to see that they got young talent that's not the same old same old out there yes that also knows the hill because it's critical to know the hill yeah i think they could give it a real run for the money it's always subject to what the weather's doing though if i say it's critical to know the hill but it really isn't they've had so many rookie winners i think tiger on the honda uh carlin on the ducati um i don't want to take anything away from anyone i think the level of the competition has been slowly increasing yeah i agree and it'll be good hopefully it'll be um a barnstormer this year. I'm going to be there. I'll, I'm yeah. stoked. So. Yeah. So we'll we'll definitely have to get your firsthand uh, eyewitness account of, How of what they're doing and sure. what you're doing with Wooly and whoever else is showing up. Um, I just got a ping from Rennie the other day yeah. while I was sitting in line at DMV yeah. trying to register my bike. Um, so he's he's stoked. He's about to. He was. I think he was on his way to go do tire testing. Skaysbrook, 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 Skaysbrook. Good old Randy from Cycle News. He is the funniest British guy I've ever met. Yeah. I'm sorry. If you put the Queen's face on your currency, you're British. (laughs) That's my new controversy of the day. (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I can take him in a fight. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see. It'll be good good times. Uh, What else is in my notes here? Oh, this one's about you. Hmm. Alta's gonna go race the Arisburg Rodeo. Oh yeah, I'm pretty stoked that you guys are doing that. Yeah, it's a big. That it, is a Narnar race. It's it's horrible. <laughs> so you have to. We have to qualify. Uh, there's a prologue. Is there is there any really risk? Because they they take it's 1500 entrants and then they will it down to 500 that start. 
Yeah. So it's the top third. Is there really and, a risk that you're not going to be in the top like third? 15, 20 people finish? That's only like lately. Like There's I, been years <laughs> where no one finishes. <laughs> and then they just add the, um, I forget what they call it. They just added a new section. Oh, God, yeah. And like the, I think there was one year everyone was just like, no, we're done. Like we're not going any further. Let's just call us the five. Yeah. The five guys that are right here were the winners and we didn't actually finish the race. Yeah. Because that's just how crazy this is. Like so if this you, is, fin- you finish this race, that is a, I would put that on my resume first. Yeah. Ayersburg Rodeo finisher, finisher. Yeah. Next line, publisher asphalt and rubber. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, well, I would name my kid Ayersburg afterwards. <laughs> didn't matter if it was a girl or a boy. Yeah. Just, Have a you're, look you're at now it. in Ayersburg. I haven't posted anything about it on the on the Facebook page just because I haven't wanted to be too much Alta too much, but I will eventually uh, just because it is kind of a cool thing that we're taking a bit of a risk, but it's not really that much of a risk. It's basically, it's such a hard thing that even deciding the, to go gives you a lot of cred just for the fact that, you know, we, we have been blocked out from yeah. racing yeah. at a lot of levels. Yeah, I've been watching that. So we don't have a place that very often. That's why number one, um, Red Bull Straight Rhythm happened because it was like, well, Red Bull, can we do this? Oh, yeah, sure. Just race in the 250 class. Okay, thanks. And then, you know, we get fourth. We're stoked. But the problem is nobody knows where to put us. 450, 350, 250, whatever. But then they won't let us just go and then make a rule structure afterwards. Say, oh, well, you're obviously way too fast for the 250 class. Then you need to be in the 450. Ah, well, you're obviously at a disadvantage of 450 class, but sorry, we have no other place for you or whatever that is. Build a faster bike. Yeah, you know, and that's where we need, right? We need to be able to develop because that's what improves the breed. So this is a good example. Okay, well, hard enduro. And interesting that it's another Red Bull event. Well, that makes sense, right? I mean, I think it's because I think I think it's at the end of the day for Red Bull, they don't really care. They're first not all, tied like, to any manufacturer. First, right? Yeah, they're not. Well, I mean, they kind of are with KTM. They got that Austrian connection, but but they don't care. At the end of the day, they just want it to be a spectacle. They just want to make sure people tune in. They just want to make sure people watch it and hear the word Red Bull five hundred times. Yeah, and then go out and buy you know high fructose corn syrup. Mm, delicious. That's all they care about. So they don't really care if. If Honda gets upset, or if KTM gets upset, or or yeah, or or what the politics are, because sure. at the end of the day, they're they're measuring success on a completely different metric. And I think that's smart. Yeah, and it's smart for us just because we need the we need the data. It's it's driving the team that is R and D to make different maps that are going to work in a very specific way in these conditions. It's driving the the R and D team that's building the bikes to make the chassis. Um, you know, tw- tweak them to make them right. So Ty Tremaine is one rider uh, who is a local uh, to U.S. Western. He's I think he's Nevada, uh, Nevada, Arizona rider, and he's going to be racing Endurocross later in the year. But that doesn't start until later in the year. So that was the first person I was like, "Yep, we're sending him." And then Lyndon Poskett, who is a big deal in the uh, Dakar realm. And he has been for years. As a, he did a great video series. Was it this year? He's done it many years. Yeah. But this year's the 2018 Dakar. Watch his uh, all of his stuff, and you get a very good idea of how the Dakar works. And he does the. Uh, I think they call it Male Moto. He he does the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, whole thing Solo. himself, including working on the bike. Can only stupid. It's a gnarly deal. So we've got him, which is really cool. He did the prologue. And got pretty far in the race at Erzberg last year on a 450 rally, which a lot of people don't understand. Like it's it's not 
a bike that you would do hard enduro on. This is the and this is the bike he races in Dakar, kind of lightly disassembled to make it lighter and easier to handle, but it was still Which means you took like three of the fuel tanks off. <laughs> right. But that type of thing, right? <laughs> Take off all the expensive stuff that's um, you know at the front of the bike for navigation and whatnot, but still has big old fairing and big fuel tank and all the stuff that makes it kind of big, big and heavy relative to a 450 or a 352 or 302 stroke or whatever. Anyway, he did a lot of it, but it could only get to a certain point because it's so difficult and so gnarly that he, I think he called uncle at one point and rightfully so. He's like, I made it this far. I'm stoked. Thank you very much for participating. And that was that. So yeah. now he can be on a bike and it's a, de- definitely a challenge to be on an electric bike because it's a different thing. So he's been uh, testing and showing his travails testing as of lately. And I'm stoked. I'm really interested to see how this goes when that's another month or so. Yeah, about that. Yeah. So, yeah, cool. Yeah, I think I'll be really curious to see see what happens. I'm very curious to see how the electrics do on the Erzberg course. I think which is in a mine. If you if you haven't looked at this, watch it. It's in a mine, a huge mine. Yeah, they call it the Iron Mountain because basically we've just dug so deep into the earth it's left a mountain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's a crazy, it's a crazy event. I love, I love that it exists. I like that Red Bull came on and helped support it and get it bigger. It's crazy. I love to go see it sometime. Um, and they always have fantastic photography. Now that Red Bull's a part of it, the yeah. photos that come out of Harrisburg are amazing. Hmm. I always love posting up galleries of that because it's just it's just good motorsport photography. So that's cool. Good. Um, so now I got to look through my notes and like cross off all the things that we've already done. But one of the things I did want to talk about was this recent Governor's Highway Safety Association report, which Governors, comes out every year. The governor. The gubernator. All right, what is this? I don't know anything about um, so it. So the GHSA every year basically puts out a report about uh, vehicle fatalities and like what's happening on on the roadway, and they actually do a pretty good job of reporting on motorcycles. Let me guess: if you don't wear a helmet, you have a higher chance of dying than if you do. They don't get into that too much, but like that is kind of like one of their takeaways of like, if you wear a helmet, you're more likely to live. They, um, I mean, every year it's always the same thing. Their, their report is the big one that we use to track just how many people are dying each year on motorcycles. Yeah. And lo and behold, it almost always is in lockstep with new bike sales. Mm-hmm. So when bike sales are up, fatalities are up. When bike sales are down, fatalities are down. Mm. No big surprise there. And then they come out with other like brain blowers where if you uh, drink alcohol, you're more likely to end up in a fa- fatal crash. What do you, you know? Things like that. Um, I think I technically just screwed up how I should reframe that statistic, but you get the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, there's certain things you can't infer from it, but that is kind of it, the gist of it. But the more interesting thing that I found, and literally I wrote the story and I said, the only motorcycle motorcycle statistic that's worth a damn. The only thing that's like really interesting now this, this report is the continual increase of motorcycle fatalities as the percentage of the total fatalities. So literally... 20 years ago, motorcycles accounted for like 5% of vehicle fatalities. Now it's 14%. And it isn't so much that motorcycles have become more dangerous, although they have, but it's really more a thing about car fatalities are dropping incredibly. Yeah. And car fatalities have gone down like almost a third over that same time period. And and I'm sorry, what was the time period? Uh, The last 20 years. 20 years. Okay. Which I can see, think I about mean, 
and, and yeah, there was and, a bunch and, of. And I should say, car fatalities really have been level until about ten years ago when they started dropping. Huh. And it started dropping heavily ten years ago. Yeah. And I'd be interested to understand because we've had ABS traction control. Side impact airbags, airbags in general now. For, I think it's. I think that one you can really attribute to airbags becoming basically standard. Yep. And over the course, yeah, we had that in the late '80s, but it wasn't every. It was car. on Mercedes, Not it was by on BMW, shot, yeah. on Volvo. Now there aren't too many people like me driving around in a 1984 F-150 that barely has shoulder belts power or anything. Right. <laughs> right. No, not not much at all. So yeah, I could I could easily see that for sure. Yeah. Huh. And I think what's important about that. Is this idea that as cars become safer, as um, autonomous vehicles, you don't have to like, I'm probably skipping a step by going straight to autonomous vehicles, but just talking about adaptive cruise control and predictive braking and all these kind of lane change assist, blind spot awareness, all these things are going to make cars safer and safer and safer. And then you throw in this autonomous vehicle thing. And, you know, we've definitely seen some stuff in the news where like autonomous vehicles didn't see pedestrians or bicyclists and it caused a crash, but... Understanding that those kind of things in a non-autonomous world are a daily occurrence, yeah. an hourly occurrence. Yeah. You know, like someone's getting hit in an intersection probably every hour. In Isn't it the leading cause of death in the United States? That or heart disease. Yeah, it's not. Can- heart disease, cancer, respiratory illness, accidents. Huh. So like number four. Okay. But of note still, right? Sure. Um, so it's it's, as we head that way, we can only see that number of fatal car crashes dropping, dropping, dropping. Meanwhile, we're really not seeing motorcycles um, decrease in, in, in fatality rate at all. In fact, it's increasing a little bit, and I have no idea why that is. Now, this is a, a, a kind of a rate or a percentage. It's percentage of the, of the total. Of the total, got so, it. So and it's that, not necessarily more deaths in general, because it probably is just from population well, increase. What you're saying is... I, I should take that back. I mean, I, we've got the numbers on the overall number of fatalities, yeah. and the motorcycle fatalities are going up. Yeah. Because um, there's more human beings. That's why I'm saying from a percentage of... But see, that's the thing. Like, that's why I don't understand it, because if sales are going down in the U.S., motorcycle fatalities are kind of going up. It's it's a whole other animal. Right. That, that's a whole other animal that I was like not the even going to get into. sales going down doesn't mean there's less miles, as we talked about in, a, in, a, in a, just a recent podcast. It's like how many miles are being ridden on motorcycles and how much how many oh. deaths per mile are we getting? Well, that's getting? the other thing. So we do have a percentage of deaths per vehicle mile, and that is going up as well. Okay. There we go. So there's, there's something going on in the motorcycle space where people are dying more often. And when the only thing I can really attribute that in my head is that we've seen a couple states overturn their helmet laws. Yeah. And maybe that's the cause. But I, I can't explain it without more data. Sure. But the, what I do know is that as vehicle, as car fatalities go down and motorcycle fatalities stay the same and increase, we're going to get to this point where motorcycles are going to be like 50% of on-road deaths or 70% of on-road deaths or yeah. or whatever that number is. We're already at 14. We're already completely disproportionate. We're yeah. like 20 times more likely to die in a motorcycle than a car. Yeah. There's going to be a tipping point in that number. Whatever that number or wherever that tipping point is, I don't know. But there's going to be this tipping point where motorcycles are going to be so much more deadly than cars that people are going to start being like, so why are we still letting people do this? You know, especially as like here in Portland, we have this vision zero nonsense. Uh huh. 20 is plenty. <laughs> 20 is plenty. There's literally, t- there's these signs all over the city that people are putting up. And this isn't, 
this isn't the uh, the police putting these signs up. This was a, a law voted in that made all surface streets 20 miles an hour instead of 25. All Not, residential neighborhoods are 20 yeah. miles an hour now. And so everybody, as part of this, I don't know who started printing these signs out, but they're everywhere. It says 20 is plenty. And those of us in the in the community have wanted to you know, put make stickers that you could put over and say 50 is nifty or 35 ain't no jive or something like that, <laughs> right? It's like, give me a break because 25 miles an hour is already achingly. So uh, Portland and or Oregon in general already has artificially slow speed limits everywhere. I don't know if it's from the amount of rain that we get or, or just a bunch of namby-pamby people, but we have like you 55 mile an hour speed limits where it should definitely be 65 or 70, et cetera. And it's just kind of the way it is up here. People drive slow and it's super infuriating for a lot of us that aren't from this and are going down a 35 mile an hour road that should definitely be 45 miles an hour. But this is what the locals are, are like, right? I just drove back from the airport. The road in and out is 45. Got stuck behind a mass of people that were just doing 30. Yeah. Why? Because that's what they do. Because that's the deal. So... Vision Zero is part of that. Right. They, they so have this, this thing saying, we want to see zero fatalities on, I think, bicyclists, cars, on the road, everything. Period. Right. They want, they want it to be a completely safe action. And, you know, okay, so Portland and Oregon are kind of like this outlier of weirdness. <laughs> but that's not that's so true. It's not that unreasonable. No, sure. To think that that could be an you idea. You got to have a goal. Why not? I'm, I say good on them for that. I'm not going to go 20, but everybody else should. <laughs> But it's this idea of like so so when you have this kind of sentiment, we've seen it. I've seen it kind of in um in Australia a bit with my Australian friends. They'll post up stuff like Victoria is atrocious for its um, speed tr- violation enforcement with sure. its cameras and stuff. And sure. it's like literally, if you're one mile an hour over the speed limit, you're getting a ticket. Uh, crazy, crazy enforcement. But it's this idea of like you know this sentiment coupled with motorcycles taking a, a lion's share of the fatalities it could put our i think it's the most important thing for our sport and for our industry because it literally is the thing that could put us out of business it's it's going to be the driving factor that people say hey why are we still allowing this this should be outlawed this is something that's just so unsafe this is like yeah you know complete nanny state takeover yeah all right but that's the thing like this is a part of that transportation changing landscape thing that you and i have talked so many times about but it's this idea you know okay so let's say transportation completely changes and everyone's in self-driving cars okay now we are definitely we're already the outliers but now we're definitely the outliers not only are we like the outliers but now we're the ones that are dying we're the ones that are causing crashes we're the ones that are causing the system to get all weird we're going to be talking about the good old days when you could ride motorcycles right you know (laughs) it'll be interesting Uh, It's, it's a really interesting time and and couple that go back to this thing we were talking about with Bosch and this thruster. It was really interesting to read the comments on asphalt and rubber because the Luddites came out and they're like, oh, I don't want this on my bike. I want to, this is just one step away from bikes riding themselves. And you're like, well, no one's think about a self riding motorcycle. How's that fun for anyone? That's a video game. Basically. No one's talking about that. A, a safety technology. That, I don't know. Yamaha's that, talking about that. Right. But that's not, they're not, but that's the shitty. That's the shitty part, Quentin. That's you being shitty because it's not about that at all. The Motobot project has nothing to do with creating a motorcycle that's like you don't need to go ride your motorcycle. Motobot will just go ride it for you. It's yeah. like 
No, it's actually a whole lesson in how they can make a motorcycle that's actually better for a human rider, but that's a whole other jam. I know. But but it had to be said because there's someone out there listening. Just the lights that that you're talking about. That's what I'm saying. Well, they don't listen to podcasts because they don't even have electricity. That's a whole (laughs) other animal. They have to have electricity. They have magnetos on their their ancient (laughs) shitty motorcycles. They got the Faraday cage over their house. Uh. They're good to go. (laughs) Um, But it's this idea that Unless we have like advances in technology that increase the safety of a motorcycle, um, or advances in law that have people wearing helmets instead of that's a part of it. That's a huge part of it. That's a huge part of it. Is is gigantic part of it? Absolutely. Is keeping people alive after they crash and making sure they don't crash in the first place and. It's a whole, it's a whole other thing. Unfortunately, we have a bunch of substitute teachers operating the um, AMA and the MIC, so we're just kind of screwed on that one. <laughs> substitute teachers? Yeah, Why do you substitute- say that? Because they're not, they're not really doing anything. They're just, they're just wheeling out I've, the TV I've- cart, putting in a VHS, and dropping peyote while they sit in the back oh, and man. read a I book. I think you're being way unfair to substitute teachers. I think there are some hardworking mofo substitute teachers. Can you imagine having to be a substitute teacher? Bad deal. It was really interesting. I was at the uh, Polaris Slingshot launch not too long ago, and I think you and I even talked about it on the podcast. But they straight up, they were just like, "Yeah, we uh, we basically paid to make this auto cycle thing a thing. We basically went to you know state legislatures, paid you know a thousand bucks a head yep. to get them to vote for the creation of an auto cycle category in their vehicle code, so the slingshot could be like its yep. own jam. And that's how shit gets done." And that's how special interests have come into yep. our politics. And it's a whole nother sure. podcast. We don't need to get into it. But I just sit here and I sometimes I just watch like the MIC and the AMA and I just go, what are you guys doing? Yeah. What are you like? What are you doing? Like, first of all, you don't seem to have a clear, a clear theory on how to keep like motorcycling alive in the 21st century, probably because most of you are stuck in the 18th century. So we got to <laughs> drag you through the 19th and 20th centuries first before we even get you up to speed. That's a whole, <laughs> that's a whole thing too. But it's one of those things where we need to get a little bit more savvy with how we do our politics and and what our issues are that are important. I still come back to why don't we have an effort to make lane splitting legal in all 50 states? That would be one of the best things we could do in terms of making motorcycles more practical for um, commuters and as a transportation element. The, motor- the motorcycle industry in the U.S. needs a transportation element to it. And this actually dovetails really nicely into my next thing I want to talk about because sales in Europe are up and sales are doing actually pretty, pretty well in Europe. Um, if I can find it, it the next one. Ooh, yeah. I actually did a good little piece of Photoshop right here. Double digit, um, increases, um, 4.7% in motorcycle sales. All right. It's not double digit, but not, not bad not, for, not, not bad 1%. for Q1. Sure. Uh, and, and it's kind of been like that. They've been doing like solid single digit growth for the last few years now. And in the meantime, the U S has just been floundering. And so, and, and, and what's the difference in that? Well, we don't have a transportation component to motorcycles. It is almost purely recreational, especially in the over 500 CC category. If you got a bike that's got more than 500 CCs, that's not transportation. That's recreation. Yeah, you might commute to work on it. You might do a run down to but the grocery generally store. Generally, most people. But aren't. you bought that because you wanted to like go do long trips and have fun and yeah, do your sure. jam. We don't have a transportation component to our industry, so we don't have any of that benefit of um, cheap, affordable transportation, new driver, urban commuter, 
getting through city traffic, none of that, because none of our laws are set up that way for us. And so it's left us in this quandary of just kind of shittiness. And until we kind of wake up and start making legislature that's going to help promote motorcycles transportation, you're just going to kind of be shit out of luck. And we're going to watch e-bikes and these, you know, e-bike plus kind of models come in and soak that space up because cities you know, right here in Portland's a great example, but you can see it all through like the West Coast, really. And, and in other places, cities are opening up to the idea of, of people on bicycles. They're making yeah. green lanes. They're making, you know, bicycle parking more priority. You see apartment buildings and work offices having bicycle parking inside that's, you know, secure. That's that's taking over the space from what should have been something that motorcycles do. That's what motorcycles do do. Do do? Do do. In, in Europe. So... I don't know. I, I laid it. I laid it at the feet of our of our parents, and I, when I say that, I mean the AMA and the MIC. They are the ones that are running the industry in the United States. The AMA is supposed to represent motorcyclists. The MIC is supposed to represent the manufacturers and the the different brands that that supply the manufacturers, the aftermarket brands. And they're asleep at the switch. They're the substitute teachers. We need some real teachers to show up and lead us. I don't know who that's going to be. You don't feel like it might be our responsibility as people within the space to do something like, I don't know what I would do. I, We're doing this. This is our job. Yeah. Fair enough. But I think also, sure. We've, we've got what three thirty five hundred four thousand people that might be listening to the podcast. That's not enough to really, you know, I mean, how do we get a groundswell of, all right, we're going to make legislation we're going to start getting in the pockets we're going to we're going to make the jensen and quentin motorcyclist association <laughs> the right. jqma yeah well but see that's the thing though i see myself as a as a publisher as a journalist as as a member of the fourth estate as you would my job is to poke the bear my job is to speak truth to the power my job yeah. is to point out and show criticism and opinion and commentary to say where we should be going that that's that's what i see as my duty I think then our duty is to be voices to the MIC. Like, no, I don't, I don't trust that there's anybody that works at, at the AMA. I'm thinking, I'm laughing because I'm like, I can't imagine one stodgy old white dude In from any, Ohio, right? Or at MIC, it makes you wonder. So if you work at the MIC and you're listening to this podcast, hit us up. Oh, they know how to get a hold of me. I bet. We've had some words. Hit, hit Jensen up. I get some, I get every now and then I get a, I get a little thing from the AMA and like oh we really didn't appreciate that yeah change yeah we change. don't appreciate you I mean they need to step it up a notch I mean you're still advocating for helping repeal I shouldn't say you're advocating you're still helping repeal motorcycle helmet laws and then at the same time like well we don't we don't advocate that people shouldn't have to wear helmets we just think that it's up to you to decide oh okay mm-hmm. yeah, how, how do you speak out of both corners of your mouth. Quinn, I got. I think I got one more thing I want to talk about, and then we can we can wrap this up because uh, a Bothan spy left me a little present in my mailbox the other day with some some sales data, and it's it's led to some interesting things. Mm. Um, going on, we the know same, you love the data. I love the data. I wish I could get all the datas. I wish I was better with the datas because then I would I would really crunch that data and make more data. But um, thankfully, I was a social sciences major in. in college so i got a little bit of that of that goodness in my heart the data crunching yeah but it's been an interesting it's been an interesting kind of uh year for the industry and i finally got to see some 
some reports. And um, one of the more interesting things that came out of it, there's a couple, but one of the ones that really caught my eye, looking at Panigale sales of Ducati. Uh, the V-twin, the V-twin sales. Yeah. And Ducati, you know, crunching the numbers into like revenue, Ducati is like special bikes, like the Superleggera, the Final Edition, the Anniversario. Yeah. Three times more gross revenue than just selling the the base model, the R model, and the S bike. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. Oh, yeah. Those years when the Superleggera came out, especially the first one in 14, oh, my God. The, this, the happy dealers were the ones that could sell those. And if they sold a bunch of them, it gave them like a bizarre bump where you couldn't even look at the numbers from year to year. You just have to say, oh, well, that was a super Legere bump. That or, was a super Legere. Or, or Desmos Adichie. Oh, man. When those came out back in 08, I, I wasn't in it in 08, but I was in 09. And people talked about how gnarly it was to have those huge numbers all of a sudden just, yeah. See, that doesn't quite make sense to me because, I mean, if you're just looking at it from a gross revenue point of view, like, okay, yeah, you sell one Desmos Adichie, one Super Legere, it's like selling three or four Panigales or whatever it is, whatever the other Superbike is. Like, how many of those are you really selling? Well, that's what I'm saying. There's certain dealers, and it's, you know, 20% of because they're selling, like, 20 of those things? Yeah, 20% of the dealers do 80% of the work. So, those 20%, the motocourses or the advanced motorsports or the pro Italias or whatever, right? There's only so many that are high level that are, they'll, they'll do the bulk of it. And I don't know if that exists in the Japanese realm. You think of, well... Which Honda dealers sell SP2s? Are there more than which which Yamaha dealers sell the R1M? And really, it's not that much of a bump. We're talking. You mean the superbike with the fake magnesium wheels? Yeah, right. That weigh more than normal wheels. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's good. Yeah, that's a thing. Uh, so those bikes are a different. You know, that's a different level, but they're, they're not a $65,000, $75,000, dollars superbike. True. And if you're at a shop that sells 12 to 15 of the Super Legera and, and make a lot of percentage of profit, then that's a, it's a huge bump. But you're right. Most dealerships wouldn't see that. That's why you see a lot of angry, poopy, high-end European dealers that are in the middle of nowhere because... They're excited because they're the BMW, Ducati, KTM dealership out in the middle of nowhere, but they're also not excited because it's a lot harder to get people to adopt that type of brand in the middle of nowhere. And you see it in, in cities mostly. Yeah. It really got me thinking, going back to my conversation with Giovanni Castiglione and just seeing what MV Augusta has done with so, like literally every bike in their lineup has their RC version, which is like thirty, forty thousand dollars more, and they always have some special edition. Yeah, Lewis Hamilton yeah, sure. or Agostini or whoever yeah. it is. Um, they're just now doing their RVS program, which is like their kind of specialty one-off thing, and now they're doing bespoke um, manufacturing as well. And th- I think the reason is you follow the money. You know, talking to MV dealers, they're like, yeah, we we sell out of the RC models. We sell out on the high-end Lewis Hamilton models and all these numbered edition bikes. Those things are so easy to sell. And nine times out of ten, you're just selling them to, like, the same yeah. five, ten dudes. They're yeah. just always going to pick up the collector bike and stick it in their garage and hold on to it for 20 years or whatever it is their, yeah. their jam is. Sure. But seeing that, that that's where... 
the sales are, are easy. And then now kind of looking at the, the revenue side of it and, and the numbers side of it, be like, oh, so those are the bikes that not only gross the most money, but they, they sell relatively easily. And it's like, well, that, that would make a really strong business argument on why someone like Ducati should probably come out with a special edition, super legera, whatever thing every year. And why we see MV already doing doing it it. for 30 years, man. Right. Yeah. But not as much. So as they are now, I feel like that's a Dominicali thing to a certain extent where you saw it. Like the first thing he did kind of put his stamp on when he came into power, so to speak, was the 1199 Super Legera, which was then followed up by the 1299. And then it was the, well, there was the final edition anniversary. It seems like every year his goal is to have some sort of exclusive 500 units, $40,000 range bike. We even see that right now with the Special, uh, the Panigale V4 Special. Because it's it's a forty thousand dollar S model. Uh, it's no different than uh, a nine nine six R, nine nine eight R. Well, right? but that's the thing. We still have nine sixteen SPS. I mean, there was all they've always done this. They've been doing it for a long time. The the original eight eighty eights had special right. See, but I think tree calore is all over the place. Yeah, maybe I might give you the no. I don't think I'm going to give you the tree calore. This this feels different to me because the bikes you just listed were slightly more expensive than the bikes that they were being sold alongside. And there's always been an R model and that's always been more expensive. And there's always been like a tree colore and that would be just basically paint and a price tag. But these are different. Like the, you know, a super Legera is twice as much money as a Panigale R. Mm. How you much know? is the, uh, uh, the new Bastiale? $40,000. Is it? So Comes I mean, with the I exhaust mean, and all I mean, that stuff, like, but a forty thousand still. In, in my mind, that's still like kind of a tricolore. Yeah, you know, so it's just paint and a price tag, but it's commanding a pretty high price. You know, it's thirteen thousand dollars more than than the S model. Um, you know, later this year we'll see probably the we're, well we are going to see the R version and and maybe we'll see so. yeah, yeah sure. maybe we'll see a another super legera probably not actually we'll probably be another year before we see like a super legera no, type but model. you know it's coming down the pipeline and people but, but that's the thing like where you can it. come in and, and command like literally the price of two bikes or three bikes for the cost of, of that that's where i think that's the difference where we've 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 created this like hockey stick in price disparity between like the most expensive bike and yeah. the cheapest bike in that segment whereas before like yeah i'd agree with you there's always been an sps there's always been an r there's always been something like that but how much more expensive were they than the yeah. next one down? And and how hot were they? Because and if the Japanese companies were doing that, you know, I remember people people hearing about RC thirty sitting on showroom floors for long periods of time because it was just too weird and and nobody had the money or whatever the thing was. And this was in the late eighties, early nineties. That why don't the Japanese get on that? Or is it only the Euros that can do it? How many people have bought? BMW S one thousand RR, and I'm sorry if I don't know the nomenclature, but the carbon fiber the race HP four race, yeah, like well, that's a funny. That's not selling well. That is really not selling well. It's, I think I know in the U S. It's a total flop, hmm. total flop in the U S. Huh. Like well, like so barely double digits. So are we just then focusing on one make, one mark of vehicle like Ducati, just being good at what they do for this type of shit? You know, how is that? How is there not asses for seats in BMW land, but there would be in the same type of customer that wants to have the well, latest, greatest, fastest, most awesome? I mean, I think I think you have to take it by case by case basis. I think the HP4 race 
got decimated because it came out at the same time as the 1299 Superleggera and cost more. And it was track only, whereas yeah. the Superleggera was, was street legal. I would agree that track only probably does limit it in most people's view as something too far gone. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I, I think I think that would uh, that's where I would place that that miss. And then at the same time be like, it's an S1000RR. Yeah, with a bunch of carbon on it. Uh, fun note, uh, back in, I don't remember which month it was, but uh, AFM, which is the the club racing West Coast, nor- Northern, Northern California, California. Yeah. Um, raced a button willow. And button willow is kind of a mixed bag all over the place track, all kinds of different. It's not a small bike track. It's not a big bike track. It's just a racetrack, but it's in the middle of nowhere. And it's... Nucle- don't drink the water. Nuclear. Don't drink the water. Isotopes everywhere. Hexavalent chromium Aaron abounds. Yeah, literally about yeah. the Button Willow area. Hexavalent chromium. So don't crash, I guess. Um, Dion Campbell, who is a, a a local hall asser in the in the Bay Area, won the Formula Pacific race on a six hundred at that track, and I think both the other bikes were BMW S one thousand RRs, and they're both piloted by hall asser people. I don't know how the race went. I didn't see anything specific. I just saw him on the podium with number one. <laughs> it's just like, it just, again, proves my point that most of these big, I don't know, phalluses of motorcycles are completely useless and, and you can have plenty of fun and go plenty fast on small things. So I wonder, like when the BMW S1000RR crowd or the Superleggera crowd or the V4, the Ducati V4, the R1M, like, what are people just starting to come to a realization that you just don't need this crap any longer? I think the phrase, there's no replacement for a displacement, extends beyond just how you make horsepower. I think there's just a certain element of, of, I don't want the V6, I want the V8. Yeah. I don't want the 600, I want the 1000. Yeah, sure. I think there's nothing that comes with that. I just wanted to, to, to just take a step back really briefly. Because you were talking about the Japanese brands and why there's something yeah. like that. The Honda RC 213 VS, I think, is a great example. And I don't know why this hasn't lit a fire under other people's asses. Because that bike sold for $184,000 in the United States. And only made 101 horsepower because of yeah. stupid nonsense. But they sold 300 of those things before they even was, you know, shipping. That's worldwide, though. Worldwide. But before they even had it shipping, they they sold out all three hundred of them. Do the math. That's fifty five million dollars in revenue. <laughs> all right. Yeah, sure. And that's so, revenue. That's not paying for the bikes. That's, that's not, not paying for the no, bikes. Sure. But you know, understand that when you're going to make three hundred of something, and you already have like your MotoGP program, basically, like you're not really making new jigs for frames. You're not really making new molds for fairings. And if you do, you're 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 amortizing it over 300 models. So like the cost of building those bikes really is coming down to like raw materials. Yeah, yeah, maybe. So you know, if those bikes cost 184 grand to sell, I mean, if they cost 20,000 to make, I'd be surprised. I mean, I would love I would love a Honda person <laughs> to tell to like to like give me like a like a wink when I'm close to that number. Yeah, but. If they're not taking home like at least a fifty percent margin on that nonsense, even even if it was forty grand or sixty grand, say that bike costs sixty thousand dollars. I know that I know that, but say it costs sixty thousand dollars to make. And so if that doesn't show a model of like this is how super bikes or sport bikes could be profitable, then I don't know what does. And I don't know 
I would love to see. I gotta. I gotta get some some Bothans going on the BMW thing. I would love to see the total HP four, like the previous generation HP four, and now see what the HP four race have sold over their lifetime. I bet. I bet it still has been a profitable endeavor for for, for BMW. Absolutely. But I do know the HP four race has been a big letdown in the hmm. U.S. market. What other manufacturers make? I mean, the R one M. That's the thing. No one. No one really does like a high end. High end. Like yeah, we'll do like our our upsell bike. We'll do an R one M. We'll do a Panigale S. We'll do a yeah. Honda uh, CBR one thousand SP or an SP two. How many Although, Aprilia? The the super whammy version of the Aprilia the, the RF. Yeah. Well, it's not like the super whammy. No, I mean the not the RF. Oh, the then. FWGP nonsense. <laughs> Whatever. Well, they I sold think, five. I don't know. Yeah, but it was not a lot. But understand again, that's another that's another track bike yep. thing. It's a huge process. Yep. You have to wait six months to yeah, get the yeah, bike. Yeah, a different level. And, sure. and that I think is why they're doing this dealership program to kind of streamline that. Whereas if that bike was headlights and go, it would be a different thing. Yeah. But not with pneumatic valves and shit like that. Sure. Huh. I think there's something there. I think that's where the future of the sport bike market is going, and people just need to kind of catch on. I think KTM has been talking for for a while that they're going to make um, not a road going version of the RC16, but a consumer version of the RC16, mm-hmm. and that's probably going to be six figures. I think is the number they're throwing around hundred hundred thousand dollars ish, and I bet they sell them all, especially if the MotoGP program takes it to the next step. Sure. And they got Zarco, so you never know. No, that's right. Yeah, that's a new one. I just saw a picture of a dude cruising around on a Suter 500 at a track day. That one the, of the, the two-stroke? Mm-hmm. I want to get on that bike. Right. So Keith, a- if you're listening. <laughs> Keanu, dude, yeah. you stole my power cord. You owe me. <laughs> Haven't gotten but, it back yet. But that gives you an this idea. Will, this will make a square. There's always going to be outliers like that. People, People that are super true enthusiasts that actually want to have the thing and that are going to do the thing. It's not like I saw a Suter 500 sitting in somebody's living room. This dude was riding it at a track date, which is awesome, right? right. It's like Cam and Co., our buddy that has the uh, Desmond Sidichi RR race bike, 2011. He goes and rides that thing. Rides it. Not just kind of puts around. Goes and rides it. It's amazing. Let's other people ride it. It's a, it's a phenomenal thing. And that's what it needs to be. you got to have true enthusiasts out there doing it. And at Leeds, I, I don't know. I've never seen one of those Honda things other than there's a picture of Cal Crutchlow standing next to one at a track day recently. Uh, so somebody let him have a go on that. Uh, and the bike that's at uh, the Isle of Man, who, who run? Bruce Anstey. Yeah, Anstey. So I haven't seen one out and about. Does is that does that tell you anything? I don't think I've ever seen one in the wild. But again, I think like 100 of them came to the U.S. or yeah. so, maybe less. Yeah. Um, I would have expected some some high level person to be like, yeah, fuck yeah, I bought that to go ride it. I want to see what it's like. I think even a hundred sounds high. I know a I lot. Of, I know a lot of the sales were over in Europe, sure, and and like Middle East and Asia and all that because a part of the thing was so I'm gonna spend almost two hundred thousand dollars, hundred horsepower, hundred horsepower, and there's really no way I can get the racing kit. Like American Honda was really adamant about, no, you're not gonna be able to get a race kit. You can't go to a European dealer and get one like it's all tied to a VIN. It's no Honda Japan has come down and said this is the way it shall be. But it's interesting. It's an interesting time. Uh, I'll be curious to see if anyone else kind of catches on. I mean, just just to just popped in my brain. I was transitioning out. 
uh, Kawasaki H2R. It's a $50,000 bike. Track only. I don't think they sold a boatload of them, but there's a great bike that's just aspirational. You want to go ride something rad yeah. that makes 300 horsepower and is supercharged? Here you go, boys. Got you up. worked up. You were. I was stoked. I still want to get one of those things. I think. I think. Hmm. I was going to say something. I'm not going to say that. Does that bike have a kickstand? I don't think it has a kickstand. Yeah. I think it's kickstandless. Yeah, that's not good. Any one of these you things we've been talking about. got a paddock stand. Yeah. Got to have kickstands. I mean, it, but let's let's be honest. If you can afford a $50,000 track bike, you can afford to have someone follow you around with a paddock stand. <laughs> right? Am I right? Yeah. Meet me at the coffee shop. You know, that's like showing up like, oh, I forgot my tire warmers. All right. Yeah. All right. Kickstands up on that. All right, sir. Good talk. I'll see you out there. All right. Later. Princess Dusseldorf.